Welcome back to When Lambs Are Silent, the podcast. You're here with Aaron and Dale. How are you guys doing today? Well, how are you doing today, Dale? Me. <laughs> yeah. can't talk to us. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. What about yourself? Really tired, to be honest. Yeah, it's been a long yeah. week. Yeah. yeah, it's been. It feels like it's the beginning of the week, but it's Thursday. So It feels like this week started and it's just, it's never going to end. It's going to go on <laughs> for like years and years and years. That's what it feels like. <laughs> Yeah, With today, yeah, we're talking to uh, Ricardo Mendes from AAAP. I'm really looking forward to this. So we're talking about the social welfare system, what would happen if we had the courage and the commitment to reform it, to change it. So yeah, it's a good chat. Should we get into it? Yep. Yeah. Hey, kia ora, Ricardo. It's awesome to have you um, on the show today, man. How you doing? I'm really good, Aaron. Thank you. Yeah. Just getting on with level one shenanigans. But. <laughs> nice. It's good yeah. to be back into level one, right? Yeah. Well, the mahi now on the ground gets real now that we actually can work with the community. So, yeah, things are going to change. Awesome. Hey, well, I guess before we get into it, I mean, we're still in our series around what if reimagining what would happen if we actually got serious about recreating and redesigning our communities and what we could take from COVID-19. And so I guess before we get into that, do you you could introduce yourself? Maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and I guess what's brought you into this, Mahi? What are you, do, you know, what are you doing here? <laughs> Good, Aaron. Yeah, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a first generation immigrant from Mexico. I've been here in Aotearoa since 2006. And I mean, I, I actually came here to, to study and um, like many people from Mexico who immigrate kind of just seeking a better life. I'm from Tijuana. And most of my 20s, I actually lived in like a really low quality rental, really high rents um, and working on the minimum wage uh, in a cinema and while I was trying to get my residency sorted. And so like I got to see the housing crisis sort of firsthand. And while all of that was happening, I remember seeing a lot of politicians blaming people like myself for the housing crisis for inequality and being told that it was people like myself who were buying all the homes while I was basically struggling to pay my rent. And over the years, that kind of led me to, I guess, really ground myself in the sort of conditions that we live in Aotearoa. And um, when I was first able to vote in New Zealand in 2014, I guess I kind of felt like I had a responsibility to get involved in changing that that conversation around immigrants and around sort of poverty and inequality and one thing led to another and I started meeting people <laughs> purely out of sort of coincidence and I um, landed doing work with the Green Party and then through Materia Ture, who's I guess one of the champions on issues of welfare, I met Great Clinician Against Poverty and uh, I started getting involved and I've been there for two and a half years now with, yeah, just working at the problems people and the benefit, trying to get stuff from whence uh working within legislation but also trying to change legislation that's kind of that's kind of the, the very brief history of how i got so it's mostly lived experience of kind of like counting the cents before a paycheck and being an overdraft having credit card debt because of like just the, the poor conditions that i was in so that's kind of what grounds me in the work that i do now awesome hey thanks for sharing all that man so i guess a social welfare system that's a great place to start I guess there's a whole lot of different opinions around how our system works. You know, I remember, you know, when I was young and I was sort of, before I started to get into this mahi, I used to think, oh, New Zealand's awesome. We've got such a great social welfare system. 
I mean, what's your perspective on that? You know, if you look at our system, do you think it's working well? Is it something we should be proud of? Or where are you at with that? Yeah, like, I think, I think there's a history of our, like, social security net and our welfare system that, like, I think we can be proud of. And New Zealand definitely was a pioneer in terms of, you know, creating a, a safety net. In fact, many European countries copied New Zealand's welfare system uh, last century. But over the years, uh, we didn't really do enough to change it and to make it, I guess, what I say often fit for purpose. And so what ended up happening is that the welfare system just doesn't reflect our society anymore. So, for example, you know, the benefit levels are so low now and are sort of thought as almost, you know, in the 90s they got cut and they never really got restored properly. And so rents keep going up benefit levels keep stagnating and we still kind of treat people on the benefit like they're lazy like they don't want to work and we still have all these kind of like all this stigma that I kind of think it's really outdated and so in many ways I do think that there's so much more we could be doing and a lot of countries are now ahead of us in terms of the welfare system when we used to be actually champions and pioneers of what we we think of the welfare state. Mm. So, I mean, how does that play out in, I guess, the people that you serve and, and, and what you see on an everyday basis? It seems like we're, we're dragging behind now, but what's that look yeah. like in people's everyday lives? Absolutely. Yeah. And look, what that looks like for people is if you're, if you're unemployed and you're in a benefit and like if you start unemployed already having, you know, little savings or without sort of owning a home and on a private rental, it looks like just being constantly behind and on a deficit. I mean, say that you're a single person on a benefit, you're getting 250, maybe you're getting access to accommodation supplements and other things, but basically what it means is you are having to go to WINS every week to get a food grant because you just can't cover, after rent, you've got very little money for anything else. What it looks like uh, for people who are unemployed on a job seeker benefit, it looks like them having to go to work seminars and being forced to take any job, literally any job, no matter how unsuitable. And if you don't take it, you may get your benefit cut. And so you get, you end up having people who have a lot of that, you know, who are going through anxiety or who perhaps, you know, something like a call center may not be adequate for them. And they may be faced with the challenge that if they don't take that job, they'll just end up in the streets because the government will cut off their income. And so I think that's kind of a lot of the punitive culture that people on the benefit are faced and that like we don't really think about sort of all these hurdles that people on the benefit have to go through to to actually survive and that's the reality of what in my work i deal with people who literally are you know unable to get things that we kind of take for granted you know money for food money for rent having to beg work and income for help when the law should provide that assistance already and in terms of i guess Talking benefits, I guess there's a discussion around poverty in New Zealand. I guess there's some perspectives that would say, oh, we don't really have real poverty. I mean, do you see poverty in, in the community in the whānau that you work with? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, <laughs> poverty is very real. And I think it's like, I mean, what's well, important to contextualize it. I mean, you know, somebody like myself who grew up in Mexico, I think it's, there's this thing we call relative poverty, right? I and mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of this idea of like, what is the difference between those that don't have a lot in a society versus those that actually do have um, resources. And the difference in New Zealand, it's really stark. It's really, really big. So yeah, for sure, the people who who are the poorest in this country may not be the kind of pictures you see in, in Latin America and other countries. But actually, when you look at the figures and when you look at the evidence, you know, New Zealand actually has a really high rate of diseases that you actually would normally see in 
you know, countries that are facing a lot of socioeconomic struggles. So the fact that we have children who have respiratory tract infections because of the poor housing conditions they're in, it's an indicator that we do have poverty and that we do have poor housing and conditions that are actually not acceptable for a country that sort of thinks of itself as a first world country or a developed country, right? And the fact that people are having to queue at WIMS from 4 a.m., 5 a.m. in the morning to get a food grant, to me, that's the sort of scenes that show me that there is poverty and there's struggle. Hmm. And you mentioned before around it being kind of hard to access some of your entitlements sometimes. Like, so say I become homeless tomorrow, um, hmm. how, how easy or difficult is it going to be for me to get the support I need? Well, a lot of it depends how much sort of what start have you had in life in terms of education and other things, but say that, you know, like you become homeless and on top of that, you're already going through a lot of stress due to maybe, I don't know, your family situation and, you know, you didn't study, you know, you didn't go to uni and didn't have access to those tools. It can be really challenging because it may mean that you enter a work and income office and you're met already with a quite a hectic space. The work and income case managers may not immediately tell you sort of what you're entitled to. So if you haven't navigated all the online <laughs> sites and done your reading, it may be the case that you may get denied for um, a food grant or emergency housing when actually legally you were entitled. And this is kind of part of my work, right? Is that then those people come to my organization that I work at and we talk to them and then we realize that work and income should have never declined. And it's really frustrating that all it takes is for somebody like myself to write to Windsor to go with a person to work and income and, and say, hey, actually, under the policy and law, you should have granted this person emergency accommodation or a food grant. And that's all it takes. It's just us repeating the rules back to them. Some of the rules are broken, of course, but the fact that we have to continuously repeat the rules to these government agencies for people to get help speaks of a really toxic and broken culture and our welfare system. So why is, why is that happening? Because you'd think, hey, like if the government sets something up, it's there for people, um, you know, it's already been created. Why are the people in the office not granting the entitlements? I mean, and I think it's a culture, right, of like the, this idea that, that work and income in a welfare system, it's not governments across decades, labor and national governments have kind of thought of our welfare system more as a, as a gatekeep rather than a, a way to help people out of poverty. And so, you know, there's this culture when you enter that, you know, you're taking away from the taxpayer purse and that you're, you know, and the case managers will therefore kind of, when they're talking with you, they will think of their role as protecting the taxpayer purse as opposed to thinking, what can I do to help this person who may have found themselves homeless sort of get back on their feet. And that culture is one of the biggest drivers of so many of the situations that we see in the news, that we see in, in my office, and that I'm sure people in other sort of similar organizations are confronted with every day and and so i think it's a matter of culture i think it's also a matter of politicians being out of touch with the cost of living and the, the reality of being in the low incomes but it's kind of been chipped away over decades it's not like it's just happened in you know the past two years it's, it's kind of been an ongoing thing since the 90s so i guess there's, there's this other big um, narrative in our country around um i mean if you make the benefits too easy comfortable that system to you know then no one's gonna work you know, like we're just all gonna just get a benefit. I mean, what would you say to that? Yeah, and that's and that's like, look, I, I get that's a narrative that people kind of bring up a lot. And I think for me, there's a couple of things around that. I think one of them is to first take a step back and really think, you know, what is it? Why is it that we kind of deem people's employment status as something that determines 
whether they should live with dignity or not. And, and also kind of consider that, you know, people make contributions to our society beyond their employment status. So for example, I think of all the people who look after their grandparents, people who um, are looking after nephews or their child, the children, you know, all of that work, or even doing volunteering in the community, all of that mahi is really, really worthy and, and valuable, yet because it's outside of employment, our welfare system doesn't recognize it as such. And so we kind of sometimes got to take a step back and, you know, rem remind ourselves that a person may actually be doing all these things that we don't see outside of employment that we should support. And if they're not in employment, we should be asking, why is this person not in, what are the barriers that this person may be facing that keeps them away from employment? And secondly, I would say that the whole way that the welfare system is assigned is doesn't really consider people's aspirations. It kind of just treats you as a number and just kind of chucks you into any job. And so that in itself feeds into people's sort of resentment over uh, the pathway towards employment of a welfare system. Hmm. But I, I think we should really reflect on whether we genuinely want to believe that people are inherently lazy and need to be sort of whipped in order to be made to work or whether we kind of give people the benefit of the doubt and build that relationship with them and ask them, you know, what is it that fulfills you in life rather than just assume that working at a, at any job was what's going to grant you, you know, fulfillment. And so, you know, if we start to step away from that narrative of, you know, we're just lazy and don't want to work. I mean, what are the reasons that you're seeing that Alfano are needing to access this system? It's a mix, right? So sometimes, people who are living with chronic uh, health conditions that are not recognizing the welfare system will, like some of them may not necessarily be in a position where they can access employment full time and they should still be supported. There's also other conditions such as the fact that in some regions in Aotearoa, like there's genuinely not meaningful employment. And so that's another area. Like, so up, I, we work with a lot of communities up north as well and we've done training up north. And so that's another reason. But I think more than that, sometimes it's the fact that people have, a lot of things going on in the life, whether it's kind of like family issues or intergenerational trauma, like, and, and you think about sort of the history of this country and you think about sort of communities that have been displaced from the regions into urban areas and then back to the regions. There's a lot of stuff going on in people's families and that can take up a lot of your time. I mean, you know, I think of like, I think everybody should think of a time where maybe a family member was going through a really hard time, a parent or one of the children and, looking after them and providing that care becomes almost like a full-time job. Mm. And we don't often see that in people's lives who are unemployed. We kind of just think of, are they in employment or are they just doing nothing at home? And we don't see the struggle that a lot of these families may be going through. Mm. And so, I mean, if we switch now to like, what it would look like if we reimagined the system, I mean, what would you like to see? You know, if we, if we had, just could totally re-scratch it over and start yeah. again. Like if we were to do it properly in a way that actually, I guess, affirmed people, built them up, helped people to thrive and succeed and live and, and do all the good stuff, what would you like to see? I mean, I think a welfare system should not have that punitive approach where you may get your benefit cut off for missing appointments. You may get your benefit cut off for not taking any job, you know? And to me, a welfare system that works for all of us, right? Or, or, you know, an income support system that works for all of us would have, first of all, it would grant people enough to, to live dignified lives. It wouldn't mm -hmm. uh, grant them such, so little money that they would have to queue at wins to get food grants. But it would actually recognize people's inherent value, right? So, for example, the, rather than the, you know, you look at our laws and literally how they're written right now, it's 
employment is the only pathway of poverty. And actually our law should be reading and saying, just nobody should be in poverty. And then you look at people should be supported to meet their aspirations. And so to me, it would look like centers where people can get trained and whatever they want to get trained and encouraged to find maybe employment if they, if that's what they desire and the area that they, they want, or if they've got other aspirations left to be allowed to explore these because our art, you know, artists, our uh, creatives, our community support, you know, members, like they may not fit in that sort of employment category. And so I would remove all of that sort of uh, sanctions and obligations within the welfare system and move it towards sort of a universal base of support. And I know that sounds quite, I know it sounds very radical, but actually, you know, if we take it from the place of believing that people shouldn't be in poverty, then it's actually not that radical because anything else exists that some people do deserve to be in poverty, no matter their conditions. So you're going through like more UBI, is that what you're saying? Um, so I guess, yeah, I mean, I would say that I would call it a basic income um, mm. and, and it's not so much replacing all of the welfare system because I do think we still need a level of support that some specific groups may need. So for example, mm. like, you know, people who are living with disabilities may need specific support type to them. But I guess, yeah, I, 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 something close to a UBI would be something mm. that I would be advocating for. But beyond that, I guess, you know, we... I work a lot on the welfare sphere, but I, I always reflect on the fact that sure, we can have this amazing system that gives you a lot of money and it's universal and unconditional. But at the end of the day, if basic things like food and housing, energy and education, if all of these things are treated like commodities as things that we have to pay to access despite them being universal human rights, then the UBI will never be enough or fixing the welfare system will never be enough. And so I think we always need to look sort of beyond that and really ask ourselves, sure, we can fix that part of our system, but we've got to make sure we also address the fact that if you don't have enough money, you may not get enough food in. Why, why are things like food things that by nature, some people may miss out on, right? By the nature of them costing money mm. and rather than being sort of universally accessible. And I think we should always kind of challenge and reflect on those things as we talk about UBIs and other solutions. Yeah. So, I mean, how do we make that shift in society? I mean, there's a lot of that quarter around housing as a basic human right and, you know, food and all that sort of stuff. I mean, what's the thing in our communities and our societies and us that needs to change? I think it's the values that underpins the, the policies that our government rights and, the, and, the, and, and, and it kind of also needs, what needs to change is the power structure, right? Because it's not like there are no communities already doing that mahi on the ground. Like I think of food, for example, and another this, communities in the Waikato, um, you know, creating papakanga and other, and other sort of um, initiatives that are creating sort of food sovereignty. But it's actually about having a government that actually supports our communities to, to provide those services and utilities in a way that it is genuinely universal. And so long as we have people in government that kind of are so entrenched in this idea that it's okay for some people to miss out on these essential things, we're never going to get there, right? So, I mean... Yeah, there's a lot of changing and destructions in Parliament to, the, to get us there. But I think it's possible. And I think we should, all, of course, always be thinking beyond the small concessions that our government of the day is willing to offer us, right? Mm. And if anything, recent days and weeks has shown us that we can challenge those conversations. I look at what's happening in the US and in other countries and even things like Defunding the police, which sounds like an incredibly radical demand, is now becoming a reality. And I think the same with welfare, you know, things like the UBI and a basic income 
used to be things that used to be dismissed as fantasies. And actually, I think all it takes is people coming together and demanding it for it to actually become possible. So what's that next thing for, for people, for communities, you know, like obviously this, this structural stuff that needs to change, um, but as voters, you know, we've got an election coming up, we hold a bit of power, um, and then even sort of in our every day, what is the thing that, you know, Joe Bloggs or Jane Bloggs and whoever, um, who's listening to this and maybe isn't engaged on the front line in sort of social activism, um, but maybe thinking, hey, I want to be part of shifting this narrative, like what can they do? I think what they can do is, I mean, of course, support grassroots groups doing the money on the ground. But I think more broadly, I mean, I think they should really question why I have said that. And then by main question, I mean, have conversations around the dinner table, really, and just really kind of think why, despite all the evidence, despite our prime minister even acknowledging that benefit levels are really, really low, why is it that we keep them that way? You know, like, and I think just reflecting on that, that's the simplest thing that people can do. But in terms of taking action, I think as we head into election, I guess, put the scrutiny on people like myself running for parliament and, and ask, you know, are you, are you willing to use those levers that you have access to, to change laws and policies, to lift incomes, to ensure that everybody can live with dignity? And if not, why not? You know, like, why would anybody not believe that people deserve this? And we know that other countries have adjusted the welfare system, particularly around COVID-19 in a matter of weeks. And it's kind of now up to people in positions of power to do it. So I think mm. as ordinary citizens, it's just kind of putting those questions out there to people in power. Mm. Oh, bro, so good. I guess before we start to wrap up, there's, there's one thing I want to ask you around, I guess, the welfare advisory group which happened and there was those recommendations that came to the government. Could you speak to a little bit about that? And once again, on that question around, have those recommendations been picked up? And if not, why not? So yeah, so the Welfare Expert Advisory Group was made by a range of experts in different fields. A report that was given to government almost two years ago, actually more than two years ago now. And this report was meant to be implemented pretty much immediately. And it had 42 recommendations. Uh, one of them which was to drastically increase benefit levels as along a bunch of things. And only about three or so have actually been put into place. And which has been really disappointing. So, and when you ask, when we ask ourselves why, why we haven't, a lot of it I think is political inaction because it's kind of politicians keep, you know, you look at the Minister of Social Development in the news and she keeps saying, oh, you know, we do plan to do it, but we'll do it in a few years, we'll do it in a few years. And I guess for me the question is, why does it have to take five years to do it? Is it about because they want to win elections? Because they're afraid to potentially be baited by the media? Or is it they actually can't? And, and if it's only because they want to stay in power, I guess the question to me is, is the role of ministers and politicians to stay in their role and continue getting those salaries, or is it to make the changes that lift our communities out of poverty, right? And, mm. you know, I look at why they haven't implemented those recommendations, and I think it's, you know, to put it bluntly, sh sheer political inaction. Like, I cannot, you know, as somebody who has met with the minister myself, like, I cannot think of anything else other than that. Mm -hmm. which is sad <laughs> yeah yeah no that's crazy man i guess as we're i guess we're, as we're wrapping up what's is there anything that you'd like to sort of leave with people who are sort of still wrestling with this you know that maybe some of this is stuff they've heard for the first time and they're sort of wrestling with yeah. how they can be a part of this now yeah it's the whole point of our welfare system or the reason why we call it a safety net is because mm -hmm. any of us could find ourselves in a position where 
things could go wrong in life. And for some people, things have been going wrong in life since birth pretty much, right? And it may not be us right now, but it could be us any anytime. And with COVID-19, I think hopefully what a lot of people who have never experienced the welfare system, what they'll start realizing is just how important it is that as a society, we really look after each other and that we live those values of collectively looking after each other. And I think the time is now to, to kind of really think of what would a genuine safety net would look like so that none of us are in hardship and none of us are at risk of being homeless. And hopefully, you know, people will listen and politicians will listen. Mm, awesome, bro. And, and how urgent is this? Like how, you know, do we have 10, 15 years to sort this stuff out? No, this should have happened yesterday. Um, <laughs> if, if we had fixed our welfare system, we wouldn't be panicking because of the job losses due to COVID-19. And I think that really shows, you know, the fact that people are panicking about unemployment is because that means a lot of people could risk being homeless. A lot of people could risk being in debt. And so this is the thing. We've been calling for these changes for years, not because COVID. And COVID just shows that we need to act urgently on these issues now. Mm. Awesome, bro. Hey, thanks, man. There's a lot for us to talk about and think about and, you know, start to engage with as we come up to this election. Really appreciate, I really appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much, Aaron. Really appreciate it. Hey, gotta keep there, bro. Thank you. All right, that was Ricardo Mendes from Auckland Action Against Poverty. Yeah. Are you, are you always surprised by the amount of poverty that we have in your line of work? in particular uh, yeah it's a good question i mean i kind of feel like i'm beyond being surprised now there was a time where i didn't think that poverty existed in new zealand and that if people didn't have what they needed to survive it's because they weren't doing what they needed to do to get the help they were entitled to you know mm-hmm. i used to think that if you just go we've got an amazing wealthy system just go to wins you'll get the money you'll be fine I now realize that that is not the way it is for so many people. Yeah, why is it that people struggle to get hold of what is available to them? Is it that they don't realize what they can get? Or is it that they don't know how to access the entitlements? Was it the way they're treated when they when they are at WINS? Yeah, I think there's probably a combination of stuff there. Like, yeah, definitely. I don't think everyone knows what they can get. And I don't think WINS do a very good job of advertising that in terms of, hey, this is the things you can get, this is the entitlements you have. You're in the, if you're in this situation, you can access this resource. But then there's this whole issue around, and I mean, Ricardo talked about it, like the attitude being that they're the case managers, uh, the keepers of the taxpayer's purse. And I want to say, like, there's some really amazing case managers. There are. There are some good ones. But there is more than enough who aren't that there's huge problems. And so like something that we see really regularly is that young people in particular, and obviously that's my background, so that's the people that we journey alongside and support, mm-hmm. often walk into wins and have hugely negative experiences and that they get discriminated against as soon as they walk through the door. So something that happens all the time is we have young people who, for whatever reason, become homeless. They go to wins, they ask for help, and the case managers say, hey, sorry, you participated in your own uh, homelessness. You caused it, so we're not going to help you. Well, that's actually not the mandate that's been given to WINS by MSD. Ministry of Social Development has said, actually, anyone that is in need of housing and support should receive that. Yet, when our young people go into WINS, often they're told, oh, well, you were responsible and you became homeless, you know, through your own actions, so we're not going to help you. Now, when we go there with, you know, as youth workers and my team, when we go there, 
and we advocate for our young people and we have to sometimes fight the system a little bit and say actually they're entitled to the support you need to give it to them often we can get a result right so why is that you know why is it that you know even though that entitlement is theirs and it's there that when they go into wins to get that entitlement they're being turned away they're not being supported and in some cases they're getting like mentally damaged even further like young people go in a real vulnerable position a real vulnerable situation and you know i've known of young people that have self-harmed in a wins office because of the way they've been treated and they've been really vulnerable when they've walked in there and then it's just like broken them you know like it's not often a safe caring environment and that won't be everyone's experience but it definitely is for a lot of the people that i um, i talk to that mm. have gone through that system and and it's the whole reason an organization like Auckland Action Against Poverty has to exist because without them, so many people get turned away from things that they're actually entitled to receive. Right. I wonder if, if it's a case of um, case of case managers, <laughs> if it's a case of, you know, kind of similar with some um, police, like kind of a few cops personally who, you know, you've noticed a difference from when they've started to being in the force for a few years, how they're you say the attitudes change, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if, if they're dealing with certain type of people all the time, that it then begins to affect how you deal with everyone. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think it's a culture thing, right? Like there's something in that culture that's not working and, and maybe some sort of, yeah, I don't know the word, but yeah, I guess that the question is like, what do, what should their roles be? Should it be like Ricardo said, are they meant to be trying to, protect the taxpayers purse or should they be there to support people and help them because people who walk into wins are in vulnerable situations and are needing help mm. you know 99% of them right so there's all these stories about people that have to access the benefit right and I used to believe them and, and think okay like these stories about you know these young women that are having all these kids so that they can buy xboxes and live in luxury you know, people that are, oh, yeah, it's a cruisy lifestyle to be on the benefit. Like, I would love, for those people that say that, like, I would love you to introduce me to some of those people that are living a cruisy lifestyle on the benefit. I don't know any of them. And I have spent the last 10 years walking alongside people that have needed the benefit. And often what you see from the outside being a cruisy lifestyle is not the reality of what's going on for that person. Yeah, so I think we have some real toxic attitudes and we discriminate against people who need that support. And it doesn't help the whole environment. To be honest, actually, I think of, I mean, I don't know many people on the benefit. I can name a few real easy who I struggle to see why they're on the benefit for as long as they are, mm. you know. And I know, you know, someone who's blatantly not getting, going for jobs because they just can't, then they just say they can't be bothered. They don't mm. care, they don't need to. They're just staying at, they got a room at a family's house and they're just chilling, playing games all the time. Mm. They don't see the need to, they don't see, have the motivation. Now, granted, growing up, I, I know for a fact that this person hasn't had good influences around them all the time. So no real role models and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think it comes down to what do we actually think about what a healthy person looks like and does. And like I said, I don't know the, guy, the people you're talking about and their experiences, mm. but what I have... From my experience, you know, like from the outside, sometimes you can look at someone and think, oh, they've got no reason for being on the benefit. They've got no reason to be in the position they are. But I've met enough people in sort of my work to recognize that there's always something behind something, right? 
Mm. We all are where we are because of things that have happened in our lives, whether good or ill. And I've always seen when I've come to a case, you know, like when I've started working with someone and supporting them and, and journeying alongside them, and you're like, hmm, I wonder what's behind this. You come to it with that that lens, saying, "Hey, like, you know, there's always something behind it." You often get to know, you get lit into people's lives and can see what's going on at a deeper level that's kept that person in that space. Hmm. For me, it's like always wanting to know how you, I guess, encourage people to not stay on it at least long term. How do you make sure that they get the help they need at the time, but then they don't get stuck because it's quite easy to yes. get into a rut. You know, it can become difficult and daunting. Even for, oh, yeah. I imagine, even for a home, like someone who's been homeless to go into a situation where they're now having to pay bills, do all these, you know, have all these responsibilities where before they didn't have to. It can almost feel like it's just easier to just stay on the street. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and this is the thing, like it's not just about, we talk in the work that, that I do around um, how we support people to take their next step. So I'm a youth development worker. We talk about youth development, youth development. One of the real key parts of that is youth participation. So young people being involved in the process. So we don't just do things to young people, we do them with. And I guess one of the things that we talk about a lot is how do we support our young people to keep you know, taking those steps forward into being who they want to be. The problem with when you do things to people um, and this is sometimes the trap that people that want to help and organizations that want to help get into is you just do things to them. You're like, oh, you need food. I'll just go give you some money. Or you need food. I'll go do this for you. I'll go do, you know, that's disempowering. We disempower people when we do that. There's definitely a point where some people are in a space and they need that extra support. But we always have to be, for people in that position of like serving people by helping them in those journeys, like it's about recognizing when your help is toxic. And mm. when it's no longer supportive. So you don't want to like have toxic charity. Does that make sense? Like yep, you want to be supporting it. people to, to be Not empowered yep. to be involved in their own change and, and be involved in, I guess, who they want to be as people. And so when you take away someone's autonomy by just like giving them stuff all the time, then that's disempowering. Now in terms of the benefit, this is why I believe that yes, everyone should be entitled to, I think a benefit system that I would love to see is that everyone has enough to eat and survive and live well and do well. It doesn't have to be worrying about how they're going to feed their kids or where they're going to stay tonight because we look after people. But then we have people supporting, you know, like people walking alongside people who need that extra support and helping them to walk in the direction that they want to go, you know. Like, so there's something like this that already exists and it's called the youth services contract. And it's basically where you have a young person, they're on the benefit, and then they have an advocate that walks alongside them and then supports them to navigate the reasons why they've ended up in that situation and try to support them. So whether it be employment or education or whatever it is that they want to do, starts to walk us alongside them. Now, some of you listening to this might know about that and it's very mixed in terms of different contractors run that contract in different ways. And so they won't get into that. But I think the principle of like actually not just giving people money, but providing them with the support they need is I think really important. Mm. yeah for sure so i like his point of at the end of the day you know food and housing is a commodity is always gonna um affect the benefit you know it's never gonna be enough mm. i guess the question for us is like what sort of um, welfare system do we want and that's saying that ricardo that's the challenge you put right like if we have the power to like use levers in our democratic system to like enact the sort of system that we want like why don't we do that 
and then to answer that question, we have to ask, well, what do we want? Are we happy with the status quo? Or do we believe that something should change? I mean, after listening to that, what was your thoughts? Yeah. All about affordability. Like, what, what can the country afford, right? Like, where does it need to increase? How much does it need to increase? Is there a way that we can reshuffle things, restructure, where it's a bit, where it's more effective, more targeted, I guess? I don't know. Can we afford it? Well, I guess it depends on the lens you use to answer that question. I mean, from one perspective, you say, can we afford not to, considering the huge societal impact that poverty has on our nation and on our people, the loss of life, the loss of potential, the loss of, you know, who those people could be. And, and, and you know, I guess where I would rather start is what do we value? Like, what do we want for our nation? Yeah, we can get caught up in our economic system and how that all works. But the first question needs to be, what do we, as the people of Aotearoa New Zealand, what do we want our nation to be? And do we want a nation where we have, you know, this sort of inequity and this poverty and this suffering that is, I think, needless? Um, because some people are just struggling to survive. I mean, mm. is that acceptable? Like, do we want that? Or, or, or do we want a nation where actually everyone has the basic standard of living, where everyone can eat, everyone is housed and has warm, safe space to live and grow up, um, where everyone has access to medical care, and where people can thrive, you know, where, this, our, where our people can thrive. And so, like, if you start there and you say, yeah, we do, then you've got to ask, okay, well, then how do we make this work? And then that's a courageous conversation around, well, is our economic system the way we organize ourselves as a people, all of that stuff isn't working for us mm. because we have created the systems we have. We've created the country we have. We've created the way we organize ourselves as a people. We can change that. We just have to have the courage and the creative imagination to do that. It's up to us. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's really hard because while you've seen the, you know, those who have really, needed the system to work unfortunately the only ones i know are ones who are able to work and don't now i know i know what you mean i, I get what you mean that sometimes you you don't know what's behind closed doors you know i mean how ricardo mentioned that you know sometimes people shouldn't have to take just any job sometimes it's unsuitable or inadequate jobs but it's like what's inadequate what's unsuitable if you want to live you want to eat you know what i mean you want to survive I think I get what you're saying in terms of like the job stuff, but like, once again, yeah, there's going to be cases where there's variation, but the system I believe needs to work for the most vulnerable and the most marginalized and work mm. up from there. You know, right. if it works for the poor, if it works for the marginalized, it works for people that have been systematically oppressed by it, then it's going to work for everyone. With Ricardo's example about the jobs, I mean, an example where that doesn't work is when you've got someone who has been completely traumatized their whole life is mentally unwell has a physical disability and then they're told well you need to go do this job which they don't have the capacity to do it's you know they can't do it and then they say well you know you need to take it well actually it's going to be you know either they're going to get laid off straight away or it's going to be negatively impacting on their mental health or you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why someone might not be able to take the job that first job is just given and so i think we should think the best of people and we should ask what does a really healthy thriving person look like and, and how do we support that to happen? So I think that's where it's, where it's hard, where those case managers, they have someone who is unwell, but they're telling them just to take the job. And then they have those who aren't unwell, who are capable, and they're telling them, go take the job. You know what I mean? They're having to work with both types of people. So what is it that, do people have access to the correct, I guess, healthcare 
and what you can make, like I guess my mental health care where someone can then advocate for them and say, look, okay, yes, this person isn't well. No, they don't. No. Right. Okay. And that's the problem. And this is what I'm saying. Like case managers, the system is not working this way. Like those people working in wins, they shouldn't be making this decision. I, I don't believe mm. like people should just get what they're entitled to. And I think what we should focus on is putting resource into supporting people to taking those next steps so they can become independent on the benefit. And so that looks like for young people, a youth worker that journeys alongside them and is their advocate and stands next to them and starts to help them unpack where they're at and, you know, make some plans for the future, maybe for adults and, you know, people in a different situation. It's, you know, maybe a mental health professional or it's, you know, like a career navigator. I don't know what it would look like, but, you know, an advocate, someone who stands with them and walks alongside them. Yeah, I think I'd rather see that when you walk into Wynn's office, whatever that ends up being in the future, that people feel cared for, they feel loved, they feel like they can get the support they need, and then we're helping people to take that next step, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Instead of having to go in and, like, be, you know, like, I, so I had a couple of young women, like, come, so a couple of my young girls um, come and sit in my office a while back, and they were really um, in a bit of trouble with their landlord because of a whole bunch of stuff, and basically they'd stop paying rent because... Um, one had lost the job, so one had, you know, something happened with education. And, you know, I remember them sort of, I was like, mate, why don't you just go to Wins? You know, like, you're entitled to this support. And they were like, well, we don't want to go there because, you know, we don't want to be seen as those type of Maori. And, like, for them, like, going, and, it, and, it, and I, I can't say it's not true, the discrimination and what they would feel by going into yeah. that space. It, it didn't feel like a safe space for them. They'd rather start this these girls they were starting they were hard work you know they they worked hard they they both were really trying to make you know make steps in their lives and go places and they're awesome awesome young woman but they felt too ashamed to go into a wind's office mm. and ask for help that they needed and they should have been able to get and i can honestly say that i don't feel confident sending a young person or a vulnerable person into winds by themselves that they're going to get helped and supported and they're not going to leave that place not having had a really negative experience yeah mm. man it's interesting i always assume there's like some form of wraparound service that happens in terms of guidance and stuff you know because that's a great idea right <laughs> i mean you think right <laughs> mm. it, it is unfortunate that um there's so much stigma around i guess needing to access the system um, when you when you're going through hardship, kind of think of it actually. Recently on Facebook, there was someone asking some questions about wins. This is just on like the local community page. I guess because of the whole um, lockdown, uh, they were running to put a struggle, and you could you yeah, you could tell that they were quite embarrassed about it by having to reach over. They're making all these kind of excuses and and giving all these reasons. They really it was no one's business, and I think you get a lot of it, a lot of stigma as well with certain types of jobs and low paying jobs it comes in it's, it's another thing that people then don't want those those jobs you know because mm. they don't want to work it you know, do something because they feel embarrassed yeah i think there's a really ugly side of our culture that does discriminate against people who need that support you know and those narratives they weigh on people you know like and it's it's rough mm. Yeah, I guess it just comes down to who we want to be as a people, you know. Like, is this really what we want? And, and like you said, I, I, I definitely see the underside of it. And, and I think that's who we should aim at fixing it for, you know. Like, 
the most vulnerable, the most marginalized. Well, it works for them, it'll work for all of us. And this has been really interesting about the COVID-19 response in that now there's going to be a whole lot of people that were maybe middle-class earners who are going to need the benefit. And soon they're going to experience what that's really like. If we had a system that just treated everyone, you know, well, then, you know, we wouldn't have to be worried about it. But there's a lot of people with a lot of anxiety now around what's going to happen. I mean, there's this whole myth of like the deserving poor, you know, some people deserve help and then, oh, but not those people because they're just lazy and they're just on the benefit because they want a new TV, you know, like, (laughs) like, uh, yeah. Anyway, I guess financial literacy is also a big thing, a big problem. With for everyone, not just mm. those on low income, as in middle as well. We just, I think they were talking about it this morning, actually, on the radio. I wasn't really listening. It's <laughs> talking to Levi. So I have no financial literacy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it all goes on what, your games? or uh, I don't know. I don't even have time for that anymore with the study. Yeah, I think I spend too much on coffee. I need to do better. Yeah, and it, it gets you through life, right? Like, what do you do without it? I feel like we're spiraling now, Dale. Are we spiraling? We're sort of, I think we are. We're really losing we're it. This is, hella off topic. T- this is the point where we say it's time to go, I think. Because, yeah. It's getting late and the coffee's cold. <laughs> <laughs> that could be like, oh, should we make that a thing? Like, Anyway, sorry. I thought that's what you were It's getting late and the coffee's cold, people. So we're out of here. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. <laughs> or hear you next week. I don't I'm going. Bye. You've been listening to When Lambs Are Silent, the podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you are listening, and join the conversation by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. The music from this podcast is from the album Dissonance by Jess Jackson and Leon Shelley. Listen to more from these artists on Spotify.